You are listening to the Vegan Body Coach Podcast, all about optimizing your strength, fitness, and physique through a plant-focused diet. My name is Jackson Burton, and I'm a nutrition and training coach for vegans, the plant-centric, and plant-curious. I'm sitting down with athletes, experts, and influencers around the world to inspire you to create your best vegan body yet. Kia ora friends, plant friends, vegan friends, training friends, welcome to 2022 and welcome back to the Vegan Body Coach Podcast. I'm your host Jackson Burden and today I've come back from a 19 kilometer run in preparation for my Queenstown Marathon and I'm super excited to record this one because this is the 2021 summary episode, uh, also termed the too long didn't listen for all of you guys out there that didn't tune into all of the episodes this episode is going to break down some of the key takeaways, the key points from the 15 or so episodes we put out last year. And just by the way, that was a really tough thing to do to try and extract the the gold from each episode because these are my babies. I think there's gold in all of them. So hopefully by listening to a few of these uh, snippets, you will go away and listen to the full episode if it uh, tickles your fancy a little bit. So we're going to kick this one off with my good friend, Nikki Birch, which we recorded back in March. We touch, in, touch on the journey many of us face when we mature into adults and are made more aware of, uh, for the first time, for made, made aware of our physical appearance and how that measures up. For a full breakdown of Nikki's experiences and experiences with an eating disorder and how she battled through this to become a powerhouse, confident, badass fitness and rhythm cycling instructor, you want to go back and check out the full discussion in episode 23. But for now, here's Nikki. I'd always done fitness in some way like I was always playing sports and when I was playing sports it was purely for the enjoyment and purely for performance I never during high school I never kind of really thought twice about too much about like exercising for aesthetics so Mm -hmm. it wasn't kind of playing in my mind too much Um, but I think you know when I kind of hit university I kind of came a bit more self-aware of my body um, because I wasn't this little girl anymore I was kind of growing into a woman and came with that like a lot of shame which is like quite natural and so I think I became more focused on the aesthetics and I was starting to go to classes because I wanted to look a certain way and I thought I had to look a certain way um, to be attractive and to be valued and that kind of mindset stayed with me for like a very long time and kind of led me down a path um, that got to a point that I was just like this, something's not right. This is not working. Like I can't do this anymore. Um, And then that's kind of when I started looking outside what I thought I knew and kind of found strength training. And then, you know, it's very intimidating going into a gym and lifting weights when you don't really know what you're doing yet and kind of stuff like that. So it was like such a process. Um, But through that, like I started actually getting stronger and from that I became empowered and just the whole feeling of feeling strong and Mm. being strong no longer kind of 
I no longer resonated so much with the aesthetic. Like I think there will always be an element of aesthetic because it's it's what you see every day, and you, you know, when you when you look good, you feel good. It's very true. Um, but it's about creating something more sustainable than that. That that's not the only thing you're relying on. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I think for me, like strength training actually changed my mindset so much to the place that I'm at now that. I'm training, I'm training for fun, I'm training for performance and it's just such a long way from yeah. what I kind of thought I knew. Gabrielle Fandaro hit us with a thought-provoking episode during our discussion on whether dieting is harmful, what intuitive eating really is and why weight stigma exists in the first place. This is a really deep and nuanced topic and I highly recommend you go back and give this one a listen at least a few times. But to give you a taste, here's Gabby breaking down the all-important post-diet period, what characteristics and habits encourage sustainable weight stability and why we need to destigmatize weight gain. I think it's also important to, to think about the fact that like weight is an outcome and it's, it's um, modifiable, but it is an outcome of our physical activity habits and our eating habits. So if we reached a weight through means that felt only barely sustainable, then it might be hard to maintain that new lower body weight because we're only going to be able to bring our food up a little bit, um, or we have to maintain a higher level of physical activity sort of forever. Um, So if we can, reach that new body weight um, through means that are generally sustainable long-term, then the outcome of those sustainable habits is that the weight will be sort of stable. Mm. Um, You know, so once we want to stop losing fat, we eat a little bit more. But I think that at this point, the best evidence that we have for weight maintenance is really that it just comes down to regular and fairly high levels of physical activity, um, self-monitoring, which does come with its own set of risks, but does seem to be effective in terms of maintaining weight. Don't know what we could say about mental health, um, but in a lot of people with overweight or obesity, it doesn't look like it necessarily has um, a significant harm. Um, but yeah, so some level of self-monitoring um, and maintenance of a fairly stable, but also flexible dietary pattern. So looking at individuals who um, include those trigger foods um, and looking at individuals who are a little bit more flexible on weekends and around holiday periods, that those tend to be associated with um, greater uh, success with long-term um, weight maintenance versus the people who take like a really you know structured and rigid rep- approach. Right. But yeah, think of what you're doing now. Are you going to be able to do pretty much the same stuff in another two or five years? Then, you know, weight loss is probably going to be sustained. Um, And the reality is that that's not going to be the case for a lot of people. And I think that the other half of this work is removing the stigma from weight gain Mm. um, because that just further drives the processes that increase those eating pathologies and that reduce a person's sense of self-worth. So if we can remove the stigma from weight gain and say, yeah, this is actually a pretty normal thing that happens to the majority of people that lose weight, here's what you can do to help you maintain. But if you regain your weight, 
that's a normal thing that happens. Like you're not a bad person. You're not lacking self-control or willpower. You didn't fail. Let's just look at what changed and see if there are things that you might want to do differently going forward. And if not, then guess what? This is your maintainable body weight at this lifestyle for you. And if you really like the life you're living, this is the weight that you're at. Right. I don't know. You know, like, yeah, yeah. I think that that's like, I hope that's the focus for most people is like, the, is the life you're living the one that you want to be living right now? Yeah. Are there places where you could seek more balance? Look at that. And then like weight will change um, as energy balance changes. Mm-hmm. And like if energy balance is changing because you're like, oh man, I really like myself. I'm taking really good care of myself. I walk my dog all the time. This is super great. I love vegetables. Awesome. Yeah. If it's because you feel like you're starving yourself and you don't go out with your friends anymore. Yeah. That might not be sustainable. That. Yeah. Next up, I have vegan bodybuilder Howes Davies, who laid down some pretty awesome information in regards to what is actually a realistic target for muscle gain in women. And often, you know, we get women coming to us as coaches wanting that ideal kind of tone physique. And what we have to uh, reiterate constantly is that toned basically just means building a substantial amount of lean muscle while dropping body fat or at some later date dropping body fat to get that kind of more defined look so really it all it is coming down to gaining substantial muscle mass so how is breaks down uh from the literature what the realistic expectations for muscle gain is within your first year of training especially if things are all lined out perfectly training sleep nutrition and as you'll hear the reality is women can gain a fair amount of muscle mass and in relative proportion to what men can gain over the course of their training career. I hope you enjoy this one. And if you do, be sure to go back and listen to this one with Howes Davis. I think the biggest kind of takeaway for me from this, I've got it in front of me now, the biggest kind of takeaway was you can expect to gain X amount of muscle, providing that everything that you're doing is optimal. And I think that's where a lot of people misread this type of information like you put this type of information out here and it says you know for a 100 pound woman generally um they're looking to gain about half a pound to 0.7 pound of muscle in a week is it i can't even remember my own numbers crikey yeah um, it, might, it might be it, it might be monthly based. <laughs> it might be monthly, but anyway, um, you know, it's it's not a huge amount of muscle realistically. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're looking at maybe eleven pounds in your first year of gaining, yeah. and gotcha. that's eleven pounds, providing that everything that you've done is really at the top level. Like you know, you've hit all your macros most of the time. Your sleep is perfect. Your training's perfect. You're periodizing your training. You're managing your fatigue properly. You don't have any injuries. You don't have any illness you know this this is really like everything has to be in line so I think you kind of have to put a buffer in for that is there's going to be several months where what you're actually doing is just laying the foundations you're learning how to train properly so you're learning how to actually recruit your muscle fibers in an efficient manner you're learning how to perform movements you're learning movement patterns and a lot of that is kind of happening in your brain um and it's kind of out of your control you know it's like when you're learning a language you don't pick it up instantly it takes you several months of 
learning and going back to the same thing over and over again before those things start to stick. And it's once those things start to stick that you can go from saying like, I live in Wales to forming a like a fully fledged sentence and being able to then go on to write a novel. So yeah. I guess I guess your eleven pounds of muscle is you being able to write your first article. Um yeah. but before that you are literally just laying the foundation. So um yeah, I think I think kind of tying into what you said actually with setting realistic expectations is yeah you can accept expect to gain a fair amount of muscle as a woman you know you're not necessarily at a disadvantage mm-hmm. because you are female I think it's proportionally men and women gain the same amount of muscle you know, but men are just bigger to start off with so they That's gain right. more and it's more visual they you can see it more but um yeah you're always going to need that buffer period like to actually set yourself up for that future gain potentiate the future gain I guess Mm. now I'm well aware that a large proportion of our listeners are likely vegan or following a plant predominant diet already and whether that's for ethical or environmental or health purposes many of you will likely be in multiple conversations where you feel backed into a corner trying to defend your dietary and lifestyle choices right Dr. Melody Joy is an incredible communicator and author who continues to bring out game-changing content geared towards helping us become better advocates and enjoy healthier relationships. Here's Melanie on how to answer the now cliche question, why are you vegan? With truth and vulnerability. I highly recommend a listen to the full episode for more tips on healthy relating with non-vegans. Make your goal, Colleen Patrick Goudreau, another author, says, just make your goal in any conversation just to plant seeds. Mm. That's it. Share the truth of your experience. Usually this conversation happens because people say, are you vegan or why are you vegan? And you can start, you can say, well, you know, the animals in the environment and tell them all the reasons they should be vegan. Mm. Or you can share your story and keep it brief. This is what happened to me. This is what I learned and why I changed and how I've benefited from making this change. Nobody can make your story wrong. Give them a little bit of information to let them know, you know, why this choice has been empowering and why you feel excited to be able to share it with them. And there's this great thing called the internet where they can go and get the rest of their information and you can have a pamphlet with you and say, here you go. And then you keep it short. So remember, you know, also that, Underneath this difference of, you know, vegan, non-vegan, when we're communicating with people who are, you know, have a different ideology, is a relationship between people. And that's really where our focus always needs to be. Am I communicating? Am I engaging with you in a way that's helping to open your heart and your mind to this conversation? And am I feeling like I'm keeping myself safe too? Because vegans are often on the receiving end of, you know, pretty disrespectful behavior and communication. So we need to like make sure we're taking care of our own boundaries. The reality is guys, we are all humans and we don't get it right all the time. Sometimes nailing your daily nutrition to ensure adequate nutrient intakes is just one more thing that you don't have time for. Having a safety net to ensure you are able to continue your plant-based or plant-exclusive lifestyle without running into potential deficiencies is a simple solution, right? In episode 29, I'm joined by Harva Horowitz, 
co-founder of Tiraseed, a game-changing new all-in-one supplement for vegans packaged in a world-leading compostable pill bottle. In this piece, Harvard answers the question, if you have to supplement with all of these vitamins and minerals and nutrients, why should people even go vegan? And the truth is 92% of human adults are nutrient deficient. And I think that's where the messaging gets complicated um, is that, yes, vegans are deficient in certain key nutrients, but they're also abundant um, in certain key nutrients and uh, more so than the average um, adult human populations. Um, and so it's, it's, we, when we get, when we get criticism from sort of the non-vegans, it's like, why are people even going vegan if um, they're going to be nutrient deficient? And there's a way to mm. live this lifestyle and not be nutrient deficient. That is possible, but it requires a lot of diligence. It requires a lot of knowledge. And the fact is not everyone is going vegan for health reasons. A lot of people experience health benefits as a consequence of going vegan for ethical or mm. environmental motivations. Um, and so we, we really want to support people wherever they're at in their plant-based journey. Cause frankly, a lot of people don't want to worry about getting all their nutrients met. You know, there's, there imp other important yeah. things to, to do with their lives, like save our planet, you know, by making, making this difficult, mm. not always easy decision to, to go vegan. And, and so we support them, um, in that way. And, and not to mention defi I, nutrient deficiency is something that as a society, we're going to have to grow more and more aware of and keep our eyes more and more open to as with soil depletion, um, overpopulation, climate change is putting our food systems at risk. And th these issues aren't going away. Um, these are issues that you know, mm. we need to be future thinking about how we can build a society where everyone has access to getting the nutrients that they need to live their best lives. And I think it can be pretty dangerous to be advocating a, a non-supplementing vegan diet, especially to people who are new at this lifestyle and don't, don't have that routine of, of making sure they're eating a balanced diet with, with everything in it. Um, and so, you know, I yeah. think there's nothing wrong with making your life easier. I think we demonize, yeah. you know, living, no, making things easier. It's like if you, if a supplement is going to make your life easier, then go for it. Then go for it. Why not? You know, what, yeah. there's a lot of pride, I think. And, and we don't get that a lot. But I think there's this, yeah. this sort of perception of oh, vegan. You're supplementing. Isn't your diet good enough? Now, if you want to get jacked and strong, Dr. Eric Helms is someone you absolutely should be listening to. Eric is back for a second appearance, this time discussing the nuance of concurrent training. We specifically dive into how to structure a training program that encompasses both heavy strength training and long distance endurance training. A must listen for anyone who enjoys participating in multiple training endeavors. And as a quick clarification, this piece is specifically detailing a training program where cardio is performed for endurance training improvements, not cardio purely for fat loss. And if you want to hear Eric's summary of cardio purely for fat loss, definitely go back, check out the full discussion in episode 
number 30. Uh, and another really important thing is that it's dose response. So I think sometimes people will go like oh, cardio or no cardio. We have mm. this when we don't yes. know a topic well enough, we fall into the camp of, well, it's a categorical variable rather than a variable that is, you know, has a dose response, right? Right. So it's yeah. either I am doing cardio and that's bad or I'm not. And that's good. And that's, that's the people who avoid the elevator or, or only <laughs> use the elevator, avoid the stairs, excuse yes. me, yes. who don't want to lose gains. That's right. But the actual observed effect is that the negative effect on resistance training outcomes scales with the volume, the frequency, and the volume and the frequency of the cardio done, mm. right? So if you were doing one hard run a week, that's probably not going to do much, you know? Um, if you were doing three hard ones, one runs a week, that's probably going to do more, yeah. you know, which is a very simple concept, but it's worth pointing out. 100%. And again, also, as I mentioned at the start, that effect is not how much gains you lose, but it is the attenuation or the slowing down of the gains you're getting. So if let's say you're getting 100% of gains doing you know only one or two cardio sessions a week, you go to your third, it might be now you're getting 95% of your gains. You might not even notice the difference. Um, and that's not a real number. But the point is, is that uh, it only becomes a problem to where you're worrying about pure maintenance of tissue or mitigating the loss when you're really emphasizing uh, the cardio side of it and you can actually get away with a fair bit, uh, especially if you distribute it right. And that's where kind of the data after that 2011 meta analysis come in. So in the last 10 years, cause 2011, believe it or not, was 10 years ago, um, <laughs> has, has clarified some of the, the distribution and timing. So when you do cardiovascular training before, resistance training, you're going to get both the potential molecular effects and that whole I'm tired effect. When you do it afterwards, you're only getting the molecular effect. And then if you wait long enough where they're not kind of those adaptations aren't stepping on each other, uh, that's when you start to see a lesser interference effect. When you do them on separate days, it has a big mitigating effect. So if you were to combine a lot of the data on this and kind of get a um, an order of priorities of how you would distribute things. Best case scenario is you do training for endurance and training for uh, strength or hypertrophy on different days. Mm. And that is probably the way to avoid the molecular interference effect the most. After that, separating it by at least three hours seems to be nearly as good as doing it on a different day. Um, and after that, doing it after basically prioritizing what you care about most. Mm. So if you only had, you know, let's say two hours to train in a day and you couldn't split it up, you would do your, your strength training and then you'd go on your run or you'd go on your bike. If you had a much more flexible schedule, you could wake up in the morning, do your resistance training and then go for an evening, evening jog or something like that. And of course, there's a lot of other factors, you know, how well do you train in the morning? You know, are, are there temporal effects for you? Are you a morning person? Um, you know, scheduling all that stuff. So sometimes those are going to take precedence over the hypotheticals that I'm talking about. But mm -hmm. in general, the more you can separate the sessions, um, the lesser effect they're going to have on one another. Then you also have to think about, okay, well, how fatiguing are these sessions into the next day? Uh, because while you might not get the molecular effect, if you are glycogen depleted, tired and have some muscle damage, and then you have to train the next day, it's just not going to be a good training session. So there are definitely some distribution concerns. Mm. You don't want to operate from a place of fear. Like if you have the goal of, I want to be really good at a marathon or a 10 K or a five K or a half marathon, you probably want to shift your focus to all right, I want to train for that optimally. And then within that construct, you go, okay, where can I fit in some resistance training that won't interfere with that to yeah. maintain what I've got? And also knowing that even if you do regress 
20%. Let's that that's honestly an alarmist uh, decision. I, I would think in most cases, unless you're truly becoming an endurance athlete who occasionally lifts. Um, I think most of the time, especially now that people have had some experience with lockdowns and coming back from it, we're realizing how easy it is to regain ground we've already attained. The diet wars will likely never end, but if you want to dive into the science and truly understand what foods are beneficial to human health and what foods are categorically detrimental from someone who has no skin in the game on either side, then Alan Flanagan is your man. A discussion around whether animal products are actually harmful to human health in episode 31 is deep and it's heavy on the science. So instead of providing you a snippet from the discussion around meat or dairy or fish, Here's Alan's viewpoint on why the vegan community gets so caught up in categorically false statements from big shot plant-based MDs around animal products and effects on human health. Of course, have a go at the full episode for a detailed overview of the current research on animal products and human health outcomes. Here's Alan. This is what I believe, and I will work backwards to uphold this belief with scaffolding. And that scaffolding tends to be, oh, here's a study that shows X and here's a study that shows Y. Uh, And that's really not how we make decisions in science. We make decisions from a total body of evidence. And within that, we look for different converging lines of evidence from different types of study, you know, uh, because no one study is going to answer every question. And so what what I think kind of happened, and, and really, if you look at particularly those MDs in the in the plant-based vegan community, they seem largely to be in the US. Mm. Um, in the UK, there's there's been kind of on the flip side, most of the kind of quack doctors here are all low carb keto <laughs> yes. crazies. And yeah. you know, and, and so so it's been I, I've wondered like why why is there this kind of transatlantic divide in terms yeah. of where the MDs, what camp they pitted themselves into. <laughs> um But I think what it is, is, you know, the first is the incredible authority bias that comes with being um, a healthcare professional, but specifically medical professionals carry a huge amount of weight in, in, in terms of authority and uh, perceived authority. The second is that nutrition is, has, has historically been kind of treated as this, you know, inferior science that's, you know, very inaccurate and we can't know anything. And and it was largely dismissed within conventional medicine. And as a result, they don't really get much training in nutrition. And as a result, their actual understanding, they come, a lot of medical doctors approach looking at nutrition as if they're interpreting, you know, biomedical research, the biomedical standard of RCTs, blah, blah, blah. And their their lack of subject-specific knowledge actually plays out when you're thinking about how they interpret, you know, what an exposure of interest is or what they consider a good or bad study and, and this kind of thing. And, and I think that kind of overconfidence combined with undercompetence can be dangerous in any context, but particularly where someone then carries that combination forward with the authority bias of being a doctor mm. and then saying, well, Obviously, I'm a medical doctor. I grasp this. And it's like, yeah, but you know really nothing about nutrition as a, as a subject of inquiry. 
Um, and that lack of subject-specific knowledge shows in a lot of the part, p- positions that are articulated. And then I think that what happens is over time, once someone becomes famous and their 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 speaking fees and their books and all of their you know public personas wrapped up in this identity of being a kind of vegan doctor or plant based doctor, there's no going back from that. Mm. There's no putting your hands up and saying I was wrong because when people do that, the vegan community seems to eviscerate anybody. Who, who dares actually say I've changed my mind on something. So, so I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think it's a community that is particularly encouraging of, of, mm. of kind of openness and, and inquisitiveness. And I think that in, in many issues, it's been led down a garden path in terms of evidence by some of these kind of very populist us based plant-based doctors. Um, mm. And I, I, I'm quite ruthless with this. I, I follow a simple heuristic that if a medical professional or any healthcare professional really inserts their dietary allegiance before their title as a healthcare professional, whatever that diet is, vegan or low carb, keto, then I simply can't, I, I just don't deem them as credible. I'm just mm-hmm. like, it's, it's a ludicrous proposition, you know, mm-hmm. like I, I don't see, I don't see credible cardiologists going around calling themselves the atorvastatin doctor. You know, it's just <laughs> yeah. like, yeah. It's, it's nonsense. Yeah. If you're a runner, a jogger, maybe a recreational athlete, whatever it may be, episode 32 is the one for you. Jason Fitzgerald is an accomplished runner, podcaster, and running coach. And in this exchange, we cover all the bases for running your first marathon. So if that's something you've ever thought about ticking off or you're someone that just dabbles in longer distance running, so anything sort of maybe over a 10 kilometer, then definitely jump in, have a look at episode 32. Here's Jason on the biggest misconceptions runners make when training for a marathon. And I I do think one of the other big mistakes here is runners thinking that they can just increase the distance of their long run every week from the beginning of their plan to the end of their plan. So, you know, they're like, oh, I'm running, you know, 16 kilometers for, you know, my long run next week, I'll do 18. The week after that, I'll do 20K. And then from there, you know, things start to unravel because it takes the body weeks to really adapt to the stress of those longer runs. Mm. And you really just have to give the body more time. So I like to have runners increase the distance of their long run maybe every two weeks. And then every six or eight weeks, you take a down week where the whole volume and mileage of your week, including your long run, is less than the week before. Mm. And so it's a nice way of just giving your body a break and also just giving your mind a break. I think it's really important to take a psychological break from training so hard and always trying to run more, run longer, run faster, run more frequently. Mm. And that that can be a really helpful way to make marathon training a little bit more doable. Yeah. But because we always want to respect the distance, because it is a very difficult distance, we have to give ourselves enough time to train properly for it. So I had a lot of excitement for Shannon Bear's return to the podcast in episode 33. Body image is a central theme to the fitness industry and whether we like it or whether we know it or not, 
It affects so many of our decisions and thought processes. Shannon has done the work to better understand this area and now educates other coaches to better navigate navigate this with their clients. This was a huge episode full of insight, full of wisdom, full of education. But to give you a little taste, here's Shannon on the daily practices for improving body positivity. A really nice exercise to run through. If you feel like you spend a lot of time, energy and attention on controlling how you look or trying to change how you look, is thinking about the other areas of your life that are important to you as a person. So this could be your friendships, your career, your hobbies, your interests, um, whatever it is. Write a list of all of those things that are important to you and then rank them as well in terms of their importance. And then be honest with yourself, you know, out of all of those things that are important to you, how much of your importance are you really placing on your shape and weight. So when I help clients go through this process, a lot of them find that they tend to write their ideal sort of scenario. Like, yeah, my weight maybe takes up like 10% of my, my time, but 25% of my worth is invested in my um, career, 25 in this or whatever, my family, my friends, my hobbies, that's where my time and energy goes. When in reality, they, they can take a step back and say, actually, I've just drawn what I think it should be. In reality, I'm probably spending maybe 40, 50% of my time thinking about my appearance at the expense of spending time um, with my family or dedicating it towards my career. So that could be one nice exercise just to remind yourself of all of these other interests that you have and the things that contribute to who you are as a person. When you've done that, Think about the implications of that ranking. You know, if you've identified that actually you spend a lot of time thinking about how you look um, and you've neglected one area of your life, how can you put more time and energy into that area? So you may say that, you know what, um, my career is really important to me and I'm not making the amount of progress I would like to be making or I'm not spending the amount of time that I would like to spend. So I'm going to set myself the goal of doing some additional research one hour a week, you know, whatever it is, like making this something specific and actionable. Another step that I think is really helpful is to reduce body checking behaviors. So this sort of helps you to think less about your appearance. Body check and behaviors would include things like stepping on the scale, looking at your appearance, taking physique photos, pinching certain parts of your body. These are all things that I think is particularly relevant for the people who work in the fitness industry or just clients who are generally interested, health conscious, like working out, because sometimes these behaviors can become second nature and automatic. And we don't really realize when we're doing them or how often we're doing them. And the issue with these behaviors is that sometimes they can serve, again, um, to reinforce the idea that it's important to tightly regulate how you look. And once you begin to let go of consistently monitoring your appearance, you begin to think less about your appearance, which then opens up the potential to be thinking more about other areas of your life. Um, So this can be easier said than done. Again, you may not be aware of that. So one thing that you may like to do is to start by monitoring your body checking behaviors. You know, if you think that you're um, thinking fairly often about your appearance, maybe just count the number of times in a day that you look in the mirror and you like lift up your t-shirt to check how shredded your abs are or pinch certain parts of your body fat. Um, And then work on reducing that bit by bit. 
So one question to ask yourself is, what am I actually looking for? And if I'm looking at my appearance multiple times throughout the day, has it really changed that much from when I looked at it one hour ago? You know, why do I keep constantly checking? Um, and if you're looking for signs of fatness, it's likely that you'll find it. And if you're looking at your body as a pick-me-up, then again, it's important to ask yourself, why am I looking to my body to make me feel good about myself? Um, so those would be like two things that you can do off the bat. In terms of positive body image, one of the interventions that has um, been the most effective is something called um, Expand Your Horizons. It's about thinking about um, body appreciation. So thinking about all of the things that your body can do for you. And this isn't just limited to your physical capabilities. Again, that's probably the first thing that people like come to people's minds. Like, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, really strong in the gym. I really enjoy my workouts. I like the way that it makes me feel, um, which is awesome. But we can also think more broadly than that as well. What about the functions that your body performs for you? So the fact that you have your health, um, there may be certain parts of your health that are uh, stronger than others. It's not to say that you know people who have illnesses can't appreciate other functions of their body either um what about your creative endeavors the fact that you're able to read to write to sing to dance whatever it is that you enjoy um what about your ability to connect with other people so the fact that you have a body allows you to hug someone else or to tell your partner that you love them and see like the reaction on their face and how that makes them feel um the fact that you can be a shoulder to cry on uh what about all of your senses as well like what amazing sights have you seen like when you're traveling for example um just experiences that you've had that you wouldn't be able to have if you didn't have a body and think how boring your life would be if you couldn't listen to the music that you enjoyed if you couldn't cook the foods that you really enjoy eating these are all things that your body does for you so I think it's really nice to reflect on that and write this down as well and you may even want to return to it over time just thinking about the types of things that you can be grateful for that your body does because we don't think about this often and you know it's no wonder we're busy there's other things on our mind but when we stop and take a minute you're like oh damn there is actually a lot to to be pretty grateful for so maybe when I'm sort of wishing that I looked a bit differently maybe I can take a step back to think about or actually you know what does my body do for me right now um One other thing is also engaging in like what would be termed mindful self-care. So treating yourself the way you want to feel. If you want to feel good about yourself in general and just feeling good day to day, like treating your body that way, so not depriving it of food that it needs, you know, not restricting yourself unnecessarily, not punishing yourself for grueling workouts. There's a difference between challenging yourself to work hard versus punishing yourself to the extreme. So sort of figuring out that balance, not being afraid to take a rest day when you need it, um, as well as like eating nutrient dense foods, getting in your sleep, spending time with loved ones, you know all the rest of it just thinking about the way that you sort of treat your body um day to day i would also lastly encourage people potentially to if you're like really struggling keep a track of your thoughts in relation to your appearance and just take note of the things that trigger um unhelpful thoughts about yourself because as we said from the start our body image is a lot to do with how we perceive ourselves and sometimes this is influenced by external factors so getting an idea that you know when you feel quote-unquote fat 
it's probably because something else is going on. You know, when we think like everyone sort of felt fat from time to time, but what does that actually mean given that fat's not an emotion? You know, what's just happened? Have you stepped on the scale and said a number that you didn't like? Are you wearing tighter clothes? Did you just have a large meal and you're digesting your food right now? You know, has someone made a comment? Have you compared yourself to someone else? Have you just seen a post on Instagram that's not made you feel so good? Um, These are all things to be sort of mindful of because we take the blame out on ourselves and our appearance and it could just be that you know maybe you're a little bit stressed right now maybe you're a bit hot and bothered you know and you're just feeling quote-unquote fat um it's important to be aware of this because it helps you to identify that it's not your body that's the problem which then may impact the way that you behave because when your body's not the problem you're not going to punish your body or push it to extreme lengths to try and change it um so i'd say that those are a few sort of important steps that you can take as well as as much as you can cultivating a positive, uplifting, reinforcing, supportive environment. So whether that's cultivating your social media feeds, you know, looking at the people that you follow, do their posts help you in any way? Do they make you feel good? Are they inspiring? Or do you tend to feel worse after looking at certain posts? Um, That's something to be mindful of. And finally, to wrap this one up, I'm going to drop in a little taste of my chat with natural podiatrist Andy Bryant. Many of you will have seen my transition into running and training predominantly in minimal or barefoot style footwear, predominantly for the benefits they provide for stability, strength, injury injury reduction, and overall foot health. And while this is still an emerging area of research, in this extract, Andy outlines why modern footwear are potentially causing so much harm. Here's Andy. If you go back to how we are designed to function, it was without shoes. And, and any shoe that we wear now, any conventional shoe, is moving us away from that. And it's, um, I mean, this is a very oft asked question, like mm. where is our proof? But mm. it's almost like where is the proof? We should be asking where is the proof that we need a heel, that we need something stiff? Like it should be, um, the, the shoe should be on the other foot, pardon the pun, in terms of, <laughs> in terms of asking where the proof, the, um, the need for proof is. Like mm. um, the, the traditional running shoe came about because in the 60s and 70s there was a running boom, in, especially in America but across the Western world, where a lot of um, habitually sedentary people became runners, you know, like going out to run the local 10K and things like this. And they'd probably lost the skill of running and they were sitting down all day, you know, like office workers, so they they weren't good movers and they were getting injured, especially around the calves, Achilles. And um, the big shoe companies went to orthopedic surgeons and said, what do we do about this? And they said, you put a heel raise in. And this is where a heel raise came about. Before that, the athletic shoe was a very thin-soled, like, waffle um, shoe like the original Nikes were a waffle shaped shoe, and so a heeled shoe and a cushioned shoe came about because of people running poorly, basically. Mm. And so instead of changing the way they ran, they changed the shoe to accommodate them running poorly. And um, I think the whole biomechanic podiatry profession has come about since then. Like it blossomed around then in the sixties and seventies because we needed to then also change um, the mechanics of the foot to accommodate that type of shoe. And so it's just moving further and further away from our natural way of being 
Um, so the, there's no mistake in the um, way our foot is designed. And so to change that design is to take away from the way it's meant to function. And so um, if we go through what a traditional shoe does to um, the foot's function, that can be a helpful way to um, explain it. So when yep. we have a heel, when we have a heel on the shoe, which is um, a positive heel, so it's higher than the forefoot, then it's changing our alignment through our whole, our whole body. Um, and I might just pause there, like, um, again, about the deep squat. Like, people often ask, what about my shoes that I squat in in the gym? And I think it's fine to use a heel for squatting in, in the gym if it's not hiding a deficiency in your ankle range of motion. If it's to improve performance, that's great. It's like having a bike that's heavy or a bike that's light. You're going to use the faster, lighter one in a race or when you're trying to perform your best. But you wouldn't, um, you wouldn't not be able to ride a bike just so you could you, do you know what I mean like the, I um, mean. yeah so that having a healed that's an, an argument that is a, a bit aside but um you shouldn't it shouldn't be used to hide um dysfunction a heel like that anyway so yeah a heel does change our mechanics um all the way up our body our postural alignment and then it also increases um it sort of magnifies anything that's going to happen in the foot so when our foot lands, it's meant to roll in, it's meant to pronate. And if you have a heel, it lands earlier and has to get to where it's going, like pronating, a lot faster. And so it kind of magnifies that movement. And so you'll see modern shoes that have some um, higher density on the inside to slow that down because the shoe company knows that this is what's um, that's um, increasing that pronatory moment. And that's what an orthotic does as well. It slows that pronatory moment down. And then if we get to the midfoot of a shoe, they're very stiff. They only really um, flex across where the um, big toe joint is. And there are so many joints in our midfoot. That's not a mistake. Our foot's meant to be relaxed and accommodative to the ground beneath it as it lands. And so if it's not, if it's being held stiffly by a shoe, then the shoe um, then the joints aren't moving, and when we don't move a joint, the muscles that cross it aren't working, and they'll just weaken. So there's some recent research that was done by a big minimalist shoe company, so you have to take it take it with a grain of salt. Right. But they had um, two groups of people in conventional shoes, and then they put a, you know one group into minimal shoes for six months, and they'd measured foot strength at the start and at the end. And the six months later, I think there was a 60% increase in foot strength in those wearing a minimalist shoe just because the joints were moving, so the muscles are moving, so the foot gets stronger. Wow. I think the sad, the sad thing about that is that, that the foot had the ability to get 60% stronger in six months because it, um, our feet should never be in a – I don't think they should ever be in a position where they really need to get that much stronger because they should never have got weak in the first place. Um, so then we get to – so the foot's come down, it's hit, hit on the big heel and the stiffness of the shoe is um, not let it – relax into the ground and then it, it does flex most shoes flex across the big toe joint area or they have what's called toe spring which is like a rocker bottom part um instead of being flat like this it's more curved under the under the um, forefoot and so that's to help the, the foot toe off to push off and so if when we push off without that rocker bottom our toes plant into the ground and switch on all the muscles in the foot and this has an effect all the way up into our pelvic floor to make it super efficient for towing off. So if the shoe's doing it for you, you're missing out on that happening. Um, and the other part of um, modern shoes, that they, they push the big toe sideways, so we also um, miss out on using our big toe properly and it should be straight. Nearly all modern shoes, conventional shoes, will push the big toe sideways. So, yeah, um, 
the, that's the issue with mm. conventional footwear. It changes our natural way of moving, and so therefore you miss out on the way we're meant to move. Okay, friends, so there you have it. That was the 2021 recap summary. Too long, didn't listen. I really hope you got some gold nuggets out of that one and sort of sparked your interest in maybe going back and listen to a few more of those episodes. Of course, the the only way that this, this sort of podcast can keep going is if we get people listening, right? So if you want to share this one with someone, give them a bit of an insight into what Vegan Body Coach Podcast is all about. Give them an intro into what they can uh, expect in future episodes coming in 2022. That would be so, so appreciated. Now, of course, I couldn't include every episode from last year in this summary. There's a whole bunch that we didn't get to cover from people like Daniel Wise, uh, who's an endurance runner, and we talk about optimizing nutrition for endurance. Uh, people like Kimberly Santa Barbara, where we discuss the menstrual cycle and, and training around the menstrual cycle, and do we need to adjust that, or you know, can we just carry on with um, a, a sort of normal training program? And of course, Tony Gentlecore on core exercises, the main exercises you should be including in your program, and the differences between athletes and recreational trainees. And don't forget the last episode of the season with my good friend Alice Rose Miller where we discuss her journey to veganism as a lifelong vegetarian and her Olympic lifting career to date as well alongside our discussion around six differences in training where we dive a little bit and a little bit more into the science on what you can expect uh, whether you're a male or a female and what the differences are between those outcomes when it comes to strength and muscle gain. So there we have it. I think this episode might be under an hour, which is wild for Vegan Body Coach Podcast. So go ahead, listen to some of those older podcast episodes, jump on some of our other friends' podcasts as well. There's a whole bunch of good stuff out there to keep you going uh, in between my sporadic uploads. If you want to get in contact with me, Instagram is your best place to go veganbody.coach, and that is also the website URL as well veganbody.coach if you want to apply for coaching or check out my training program options as well and I'm excited to bring some new services to the table in 2022 as well alongside a whole bunch of new exciting episodes with brand new guests so with that go out there get some lifts in get some plants on your plate and we'll see you in the next one 